Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Hallelujah. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain, you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. For he grants sleep to those he loves. And then to the New Testament, John 11, Jesus said, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake him up. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then 1 Thessalonians 4, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. Actually, the translators have added in death there. In the original, it's not there. It's just those who have fallen asleep. They've added in death to make it clearer for us. Do not be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep, so you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So what I hope to do this morning is that I might encourage you, we might encourage one another with these incredible promises from Scripture that we've read together. This is a little short series about what it is to be human beings, and sleep and death are essential to our humanity. And the purpose of what I want to talk about over these three weeks is really to help us in our health, to help us in our emotional and spiritual health, also to help us in our physical health. As I was speaking about last week, we are united beings. We're organic spiritual beings, and we want to be healthy people. So for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I hope this will help us grow in our health. For those of you who don't know Jesus, I hope it has some relevance to you as well and might even cause you to think more about what we as Christians believe, what we believe to be true. First thing then, the body and sleep. Now, sleep has become strangely fashionable over the last few months in the sense that there are an incredible number of articles and programs which seem to be spewing out at the moment about how important sleep is and how much you should have and how it should happen. One book which I read which really fascinated me was a book called Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. He's a, he's a Brit but now re relocated to the University of California where he's professor of neuroscience and psychology and director of the Sleep and Neuroimaging Laboratory, which is a lot to get into your name card. And it's a fascinating book. It actually kept me awake at night worrying about it. 
I was thinking so much about what sleep is like, I couldn't sleep. Some things I learned from Matthew Walker. First of all, negative effects if you don't get enough sleep. So not having enough sleep contributes to all major psychiatric conditions, including depression and anxiety and suicidality. And a totally emotionally healthy person, if they are to go without sleep for three days, that can induce psychosis in a perfectly healthy person. Lack of sleep has a very profound negative impact upon mental health. Also has a profound impact upon concentration. There are more motor accidents as a consequence of drowsy sleeping than as a consequence of drug and alcohol use combined. It's a huge campaign about not drinking and driving, but actually sleepy driving is statistically more dangerous than the accidents it causes and the deaths that ensue. And no one can actually survive on five hours or less sleep without significant mental impairment. Get sleep for less than five hours a night and you start to lose your emotional equilibrium. Your own emotions become much more volatile and you actually become much less able to read and discern the emotions of other people. If you are underslept, you tend to perceive other people as being hostile and aggressive towards you even when they're not, just because you're not emotionally attuned, because you're too tired. And too little sleep is also associated with development of Alzheimer's disease. It's rather depressing stuff, isn't it? Now, if you think about some prominent people, think about Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, two prominent politicians of a previous generation, who were famously proud of the fact that they didn't sleep for more than four or five hours a night, both of whom developed Alzheimer's, both of whom had questionable kind of emotional responses to other people. Think about the current president of the United States, who also boasts about not sleeping for four or five hours a night and is, if nothing else, emotionally volatile. And some are seriously suggesting that he is showing signs of Alzheimer's development. Those things might be linked. Actually, we're so sensitive to changes in sleep that the day after the clocks go forward, there's a spike in the number of heart attacks and a spike in the number of traffic accidents. Just one hour's difference in sleep can make that much difference. Also, the less you sleep, the hungrier you get, and you are more attracted to high-carb, high-sugar foods. Look at this graph from the United States. One graph shows a decline in sleep in general amongst the population. The other line shows an increase in obesity. There's a huge concern about the obesity so-called epidemic at the moment. There seems to be a clear parallel, a clear connection between us sleeping less and us eating more. And here's a final worrying one for the men. Men who sleep too little have a 29% lower sperm count than men who sleep enough. Mm, that silenced the room. <laughs> so there's some very negative effects to not having enough sleep. How, how then are we meant to sleep? Well, our, our bodies, are, uh, we have internal body clocks, what we talk about as the circadian rhythm. We're, we're made biologically to operate on a, on, a, on, a kind of, on a clock, on a rhythm. And that actually changes according to your age. As you get older, your body clock kind of moves um, this way, earlier in, the, earlier in the day. So teenagers, there's, you know, people always get very fed up because teenagers stay up too late and then want to sleep in too late. The scientific evidence is clear that teenagers actually have circadian rhythms which are several hours later than their parents. So to ask a 10-year-old to go to bed at 10 o'clock is like, uh, six, sorry, to ask a 16-year-old to go to bed at 10 o'clock is like asking their parents to go to bed at 7 o'clock. 
The circadian rhythm just doesn't match. Teenagers are meant to go to bed later, and they're meant to sleep in later. Actually, school should probably start later than they do for the best educational impact. We're actually designed for what's called biphasic sleep. That's sleep in two parts. We are meant to sleep for seven or eight hours at night, and we are also meant to have an afternoon nap. I am a big fan of an afternoon nap. Doesn't always happen, but even quite often here when I'm working in the office next door, it gets to 2.30, I know my energy levels are sinking. Answer for me is a strong coffee at 2.30, then 20 minutes asleep on the sofa up in the room upstairs, and then bang, I'm ready for the rest of the day. Resets the energy levels. There was a study done by the university, Harvard University, done in Greece, as Greece transitioned to a more kind of typically northern European pattern of working and began to abandon the typical Greek siesta. They did a survey of 23,000 people over six years. And they found that those who abandoned the siesta had a 37% increase in risk of death from heart disease. And amongst working men, those engaged in manual labor, that increased to 60%. So have a siesta if you possibly can. It's a good thing to do. Now, what, then will, what things keep us from sleeping? The reality is that many people struggle with sleep, and there are many reasons for that. In the US, the sleep aid industry, sleeping pills and so on, is worth $30 billion a year because of people's disrupted sleeps. Five things which are major modern contributors to lack of sleep, and in this series, particularly thinking about how technology affects us as human beings. The first thing is modern lighting. Uh, modern lighting messes up our body clocks, especially LED lighting. And where does LED lighting come from? It comes from screens. And what do many people do last thing at night? Watch TV, look at their phone, read in an iPad, look at their computer, go to bed, and then you can't sleep. It's because it impacts melatonin. And melatonin is one of the body's chemicals that helps us to sleep. If you read in an iPad before going to sleep, that suppresses melatonin levels by 50%. Don't read in an iPad when you go to bed. Don't look at a screen for a couple of hours before going to bed. Second thing which can keep you from sleeping is alcohol. Often people think alcohol helps me to get to sleep. It doesn't. You might think you're sleeping, but what alcohol does is actually to sedate you. It's a form of mild anesthesia. And what that means is that alcohol disrupts the... There's two kinds of sleep. There's REM sleep and there's non-REM sleep. And REM sleep is a sleep you have when you're dreaming, and that's especially associated with developing strong memories. It's good for your memory and mental health. And what alcohol does is to prevent REM sleep. So you, kind of get, you might get kind of drugged out, but you don't actually wake up rested. The third cause of disruptive sleep is heating. Who's been struggling to sleep the last couple of weeks? Well, it's been so hot, so I know I have. The last couple of weeks have been terrible for sleep. But many of us have our houses far too warm. For, to go to sleep effectively, the, the body's core temperature needs to drop by one degree C. 18 degrees C is about the perfect temperature to get to sleep. But many of us go to bed with our houses heated way higher than that. Good news for all those of you who want to turn the thermostat down and save money. <laughs> it's going to help you get to sleep. The fourth thing which keeps us from sleeping is caffeine. There's a 
Melatonin is one chemical that is important in our sleep process. Another is adenosine, and adenosine is a chemical that builds up in the brain throughout the course of the day until it finally reaches a level where you just have to go to sleep. What caffeine does is to block the adenosine receptors. And caffeine hangs around in the body a long time. It has what's called a half-life. Uh, that's half the time it exists of between five and seven hours. So if you drink a cup of coffee at 7.30 p.m. after your dinner, at 1.30 a.m., half of it is still going to be in your system. Look at this picture of spider webs. They, no, I know we're not spiders, but this is still interesting. They gave LSD speed marijuana and caffeine to spiders, and the caffeine screws the spiders far more than the drugs does. That's why I never drink a cup of coffee after 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And then the fifth thing, which is... Something which often keeps us awake is guilt. Now, that might actually be a guilty conscience, in which case you need to find forgiveness and grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. But it also can be guilt about the process of sleeping itself. We live in a society which, in which we're awash with health and safety rules, but we're still so often made to feel guilty if we want to sleep. It's kind of seen as a sign of weakness. One U.S. senator said, I've always loathed the necessity of sleep. Like death, it puts even the most powerful men on their backs. And we can have that sense of objecting to sleep because it looks like laziness. It looks like failure. And that can stop us from sleeping as we should. So what about the theological significance of sleep? Well, every species on Earth, every animal species on Earth which has so far been studied sleeps. It's not an animal which doesn't sleep. All animals do. The only being in the universe who doesn't sleep is God. God does not slumber and sleep. And one of the things that sleep does is reveal our creatureliness. It reveals the truth that we're not God. God doesn't need sleep. The starlings do. The slugs do. Starfish do, spiders do, chimpanzees do, you do. But God doesn't. We're creatures. And so we need to surrender to sleep. And if we don't surrender to sleep, we'll get ill. If you refuse to surrender to sleep at all, you will, in the end, die. Good sleep helps with good health. It helps build strong memory. It helps with good mood. But sleep is also a kind of daily dying. When we lie down to sleep, we're putting ourselves in the most vulnerable position that we can be. We are vulnerable. We're unconscious. We're not aware of what is going on in the world. It's a position of surrender. And when we surrender to sleep, it's actually or should actually be a means of us surrendering to God. We recognize that he is the one who does not sleep. He watches over us. We need to sleep. We surrender our autonomy. We surrender our personal power. Sleep reminds us that the Lord is in control. Psalm 127 again. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city... The guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. The pattern of so many people in the modern world is to 
object to sleep because it, precisely because it reveals our, lim- our limitations. It reveals our creatureliness. And what the scriptures say to us is you can work as hard as you like, you can stay up as long as you like, but unless God is helping you, it's all going to crumble to ashes anyway. And what the faithful Christian does is to say, I trust you, Jesus. I'm going to lay down to bed. I'm going to sleep. I'm going to get my eight hours. I'm going to trust you. The world will still keep spinning, even though I haven't got a clue what's going on. I'm going to trust you. You're going to watch over me. I'm going to believe in you. It's an act of worship, in a sense, to say that I'm going to sleep believing the Lord will watch over me. I'm going to sleep believing that he will get the work done. I'm going to sleep believing that he will wake me in the morning. Sleep is God's gift to us. Now, what about death, then? If sleep is a kind of daily dying, what about death itself? Second thing, the body and death. Now, who wants to think about death? A few weeks ago, a senior member of our congregation here came to see me to talk about her anticipated death, which hopefully isn't for a long time, but it's going to come, as it will to all of us, and to talk about plans for how, what should happen then, and funeral arrangements, and so on. And I thought that was an incredibly humble thing to do, and also an incredibly wise thing to do, to actually intelligently, deliberately make a plan. What's going to happen? How do I deal with my life, what will happen to those who come after me, my responsibilities I have when I die, what kind of funeral service would I like? Incredibly humble, I think, incredibly wise thing to come and talk about. Now, what does the gospel tell us about death? Last week, I was talking about what it is to be a, a body and saying that uh, one of the mistakes of our modern world is because we live in a mac- mechanistic world. We think of our bodies in mechanistic terms. We think increasingly of our bodies as kind of hardware, which is uh, somehow disposable, and as our consciousness, our minds as software, which is the real thing. And that's a terrible, terrible metaphor for what humans are. We're not machines. Our bodies aren't kind of just hardware with a plugged-in software thing in there. No, we're uh, organic, spiritual unity. Our bodies are not disposable items which can be upgraded. Humans are a unity of body and spirit. We're dust, yes, but we're God-breathed dust. Now, how might that affect how we think about death? The mechanistic view of the body has changed how we think about death A poet and undertaker called Thomas Lynch written a wonderful little book called The Undertaking in which he describes the way in which the habit or the practice of keeping the bodies of the dead in the home and sitting with them for hours or days and people visiting and sharing together, how that stopped at the same time as toilets came from outside the house to inside the house. And he says this, the thing about the new toilet is that it removes the evidence in such a hurry. It is the same with our dead We are embarrassed by them in the way that we are embarrassed by a toilet that overflows the night that company comes. It is an emergency. We call the plumber. Now, as Christians, we are not ashamed of our dead because we expect our dead to be raised to glorious new life. And this means their bodies continue to be valuable even when they are dead. And so when we have funerals and people point at the coffin and say, it's not really him, it's not really her in there, that's not really true. It really is him or her in there still. The body is still valuable. Dead Christians are not a problem to be disposed of. Dead Christians are a seed planted in expectation of glorious life. 
So what should we do with the dead? In my time as a pastor, 24 years or something now, I don't know how many cremations that I've ministered at. I know that I've only ever taken one burial. And all my personal family members who've died have been cremated, with the exception of Grace's dad, who died two years and a week ago. And we buried him in a churchyard in their home village. Now, I personally want to be buried, not cremated, because of my convictions about the body. And I really do think that we should buy a church graveyard at some point. (laughs) I want to be really careful here because I don't want to cause upset to anybody, but I think these are important things to talk about. American theologian Russell Moore in his book Onward says this, one of the most controversial topics that I ever address among Christians is not abortion, same-sex marriage or immigration policies as you might imagine, it's cremation. I point out that Christianity historically has rejected cremation as a false picture of the body. Burial signifies a Christian hope that the deceased is sleeping and thus will be waked at the coming of the Lord. Cremation signifies a perspective found in Buddhism and other religions that the body is consumed into nothingness. I'll just pause there for a moment and think. It goes on to say this, I find that the first implication people draw from this, somehow, is that I'm suggesting that cremated people go to hell. Can't I be resurrected from an urn as easily as I can from a casket, they ask? Of course. That's not the point. God can resurrect me if my body is eaten by alligators, but I wouldn't dispose of Aunt Gladys that way, shrugging and asking, what does it matter? See her in heaven. (laughs) The way we treat the body is a sign of what we believe about the future. The woman around Jesus cared for his body because, anointed with spices, because it was him. They knew that the body is important because it will be part of the new creation. Whether that resurrection happens in a matter of days or after billions of years of decay, Christians respect the body because we believe our material bodies are part of God's goal for us and for the universe. The reality is that just as we awake from sleep, we will wake from death. We're going to have another illustration of that in a few minutes' time when Louise gets baptized. What what is this? This is an illustration of death and of life. Louise is going to die, metaphorically. (laughs) And then she's going to be raised to new life, which is not merely metaphorical. That's real. Louise has received new life in Christ. And this is a sign of what has happened and what will happen. Death. To the old way of being, life in Christ forevermore, and the hope of resurrection one day. Hallelujah. That's what baptism points to. Professor of Christian Ethics David Jones says this, It is possible to trace the spread of the gospel across the Roman Empire by focusing upon cremation. For while the Romans burned their dead, the Christians buried theirs. In a similar manner, the last of the non-Christian emperors, Julian the Apostate, 
identified care of the dead as one of the factors that contributed to the spread of Christianity throughout the Roman world. Christians' display of decency to the human body in showing care for the dead was one of the main reasons for the church's rapid conquest of the ancient world. Wow! Burial was like a first-century alpha course. (laughs) Amazing. Now, if you come to me to plan your funeral, and you should. The person who came to see me a few weeks ago, I so commend. It was a humble, brave, and wise thing to do. You should plan for your death. You should set out some plans for how you want your funeral to be. It's wise. Now, if you come to me and say, I really want to be cremated, I'm still going to take your cremation. But I'm going to try and persuade you to be buried instead. Because the Christian dead are not dead, they're asleep. And one day, they will awake. And to me, burial seems to represent that more than does cremation. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Hallelujah, we have hope if we trust in Christ. We have hope of resurrection from the dead. Finally then, what about the soul and death? What happens to the souls and spirits of those who die? If the body is asleep, what happens to our souls? Well, the New Testament teaches that believers in Christ Jesus go straight to be with Jesus, which is why we Christians are not to fear death. 2 Corinthians 5.8, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Philippians 1.21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. If I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. In the words of Christ to the thief on the cross, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Hallelujah. When we die, the body sleeps, the soul of believers is with Christ Jesus. But that's not the end of the story. That state is actually temporary, just as when we sleep, that is a temporary state. Now, you know, if you're really tired, sleep is incredibly attractive. If you're incredibly stressed, dreamland feels a lot more restful than being awake. If you're tired, if you're stressed, you'd rather be asleep than awake. It's a better state to be in. But we know that sleep is always temporary and often disrupted. Now, our souls being with Christ is similarly desirable. As Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And there is something desirable about death because our souls go to be with Christ and we will then be freed from the demands and toil and pressures of this life. But what you'd really choose if you're tired and stressed and anxious is not simply go to sleep. What you'd really choose is for life to be different and to be able to be awake and to enjoy life. That's what you'd actually choose. You'd choose that over sleep any day. 
when we get together with people that we love and we reminisce about blessed, happy days that we've had together. It's the blessed, happy days that we reminisce about. We don't say, oh, I remember I had such a good night's sleep back there in 1989. It was amazing. No! You talk about the wedding, you talk about the holiday, you talk about the football match, whatever it might be. Yesterday, um, my parents and me and my brother and his family were together. It was my, it was my parents' golden wedding anniversary a couple of weeks ago, and we were celebrating together. And you're talking about the wedding day those years ago, and you're talking about all that the wedding has then produced in terms of children and grandchildren and life. You don't reminisce about how many nights sleep you had, even though throughout that 50 years, I'm sure sleep has been much desired at many points, <laughs> especially some of the trouble I caused you. the same with death. The goal isn't simply that we die and our souls get to be with Jesus now. Resurrection is the goal. 1 John 3, 2, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. 1 Corinthians 15, 13, if If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. So is your faith. If you're not here in hope that one day you'll be raised from the dead, you're wasting your time. You'd be better down on the beach making the most of the life you can grab now. You'd be better trying to get some sleep now. But it's this resurrection, bodily resurrection, that we're to eagerly anticipate. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. Not everyone's going to die. Some will still be alive when Christ returns. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. Yes, our bodies will be raised, and our souls will be embodied. It's going to be no separation division between the body and the soul. There's a unity about us now, and there will be forever, but so much more united, so much more perfect, so much more glorious. And what's going to happen in our bodies is a picture of what's going to happen in all of creation. Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there is no longer any sea of separation. I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And what happens when this moment of Unity between heaven and earth, between body and soul takes place. Then he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. The old order will pass away. Come, Lord Jesus.
all the things that a good night's sleep can't fix will be fixed when Christ returns. The inevitable separation and pain that we now experience because of death will end. The tears will be wiped away. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Hallelujah. If you're a Christian, sleep the sleep of the just. Take your afternoon siesta. Turn off your screen two hours before going to bed. Sleep trusting Jesus. Fear not death and savor the prospect of your resurrection. Amen? Amen. Sovereign Lord, I thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you that Christ, you have been raised from the dead, and so our faith is not in vain. Thank you that as Louise gets baptized this morning, that's a tangible, enacted sign, declaration of that, of her belief in the reality of your resurrection and what that means for her. And I pray, Lord, for us here who know you, that we would know this hope of what we're called to, what we anticipate, our bodies being raised and living with you and like you somehow forever, united, God coming down and dwelling amongst us, heaven and earth joined. Lord, for those who don't yet know you, I pray that this morning you might even be drawing their hearts towards you, drawing their hearts towards the one who promises, guarantees life now and forevermore. Thank you for your mercy to us. Thank you that you lived amongst us. Thank you that you died in our place, King Jesus. And thank you that you have been raised to glorious, eternal life. You reign over all things. You do not slumber or sleep, but you watch over us and we can trust you.